Welcome to Mud 79. I'm Fearless Fred Kennedy, the creator of this totally original and in no way authorized Star Wars fan fiction podcast. If you're listening, odds are you're a fan of the universe George Lucas created. I am too. I love Star Wars and have been desperate to tell my own Star Wars story. But I always wanted a story that was more focused on the struggles on the front lines and less about the machinations of the Senate. A boots on the ground story about the millions of people desperate to survive the horrors of galactic war. That is what Mud 79 is all about. If you're new to the show, welcome, but please be aware this is a series. So if you don't want to be totally lost, start from the beginning with episode one. You don't want to be a stormtrooper. This is episode seven, The Warehouse. After causing an incident that leads to a death in the swoop bike races at Floon Bay, Solomon Kwai and the rest of the 79th platoon were given labor duty in a nearby town of Flaudine. But after a long day in the fields, they were given a jar of tea by one of the local children. A jar of tea that contained a human finger. Who was that local child? How did they get the jar? And who does that finger belong to? Let's find out. We stared at the finger sitting in the pile of dry tea. Its skin tainted orange from the spice and leaves. I pulled the jar back to my face and took a look inside, hoping it was empty. But there was something else. A small, clear capsule. I reached in and plucked it out. It held a small piece of paper. Written on it was, Num Ukarme, Southwest Corner of the Market, Bendu Day, 10 a.m. Num was in the first squad, the ones that went down on our first mission, which was only a few months ago. We wondered if he was still alive, held hostage or something. We passed the note around. There were six of us in there, huddled in the tent, talking in muffled tones. What do we do now? Get one of the sergeants? Targon was our new heavy gunner. She wasn't even here during that flyout, and it helped give me a sense of how much things had changed in such a short time. Dread built up inside me, and my heart pounding drowned out the chatter. I shushed them all, making eye contact with Altherium because he was there that day. He was one of the ones who saw the bodies, piled like livestock. Headless. Desecrated. We should get Husto, I said while standing up. Stay in the tent, no one in or out. Eltherium nodded. Don't worry, I'll hold them down. I ventured outside, closing the flap behind me. There was some light bustle and the early evening sky was pink, painting the fields that were ready for harvesting in a grayish blue. I remember the scent of the fields, a sweet, sticky smell, that verge of rotting, much like how I felt inside. Staven was in front of her tent, blaster rifle disassembled on a blanket in front of her, cleaning each part meticulously while taking sips from a bottle of Kang Tree. I looked around, seeing if I could catch the corporal out in the open, then made for the medical tent, trying to act as casual as possible. 
I tried to remember what I could from the night Squad 1 was shot down. What we'd seen when we found the bodies. I know Murray told us that one body was missing. We'd even discussed it a few times since. Was that numb? Was he the one they took? Or was this some sort of trap from the brass to catch us talking? I was paranoid. What if the camp was being watched by whoever made sure we got that jar? I eyed the perimeter of camp while I walked. The same rows of calvines, the muddy grasslands, air traffic from Flaudine. Nothing unusual. I ran through every detail that awful night, three, make it four months ago. The way Husto, the LT, and Hefspar were all taken up to the Star Destroyer in orbit for interrogation. Everything. In particular, the way the LT warned us not to talk about anything we'd seen. You will not speak of what you saw here tonight. Is that understood? What was going to happen now? You should be getting ready for lights out, Private. Husto was out in front of the medical tent. He startled me out of my reverie. My face must have looked serious when I told him I needed to show him something. You catch a bug visiting one of those back alleys in town? You know the rules. You gotta take precautions when engaging in those types of recreational activities. No. My expression hadn't changed. Something worse. Just follow me. He knew I wasn't fucking around and took a sharp drag on his tobacco stick and then got up. Okay, Kwai, lead the way. This better be worth my time. He was walking slowly, emptying his drink, but then he opened the flap of our tent and his nose perked up right away. You guys aren't drinking Relenty, are you? That shit is a narcotic. No, Corporal. Well, we were going to, but we found these in a jar. Ethereum gave him the finger along with the accompanying note, and Husto looked at them suspiciously. He read the note, then eyed the finger again, holding it up close. He didn't look at us. Lash the front flap and don't let anyone in or out. No one. Understand? And then he took off. Out the front, promising to come back soon. I lashed the flap closed and watched him through the small opening as he broke into a quick jog heading back to the medical clinic. One hour passed as the six of us crowded in a four-person tent. It was hot, muggy from our breath. The place was starting to smell a bit ripe. Then someone unlashed the flap and came in. It was Orto. Where'd you get the tea? The LT seemed hostile, like when we were in the bush. Low, quiet, and left the impression it'd be wise to listen. One of the FNGs in the group explained what happened, the little girl and all that, how she gave us the tea and explained that the people were grateful. She didn't call you out by name or anything, did she? There was no indication she knew who you were as individuals? We said no, and he asked what the girl looked like, anything distinct. So we described her as best we could, Average-looking little girl, 10 or 11, twillick, blue skin, navy blue marks on her leku. He jotted it all down, nodding. I asked if anything was going to happen to her. She was just a kid. The LT cut me off and looked at me directly. No, Private, that's not what we do. We just need to talk to her. Then he left us alone. 
as the tensions rose, wondering if we'd just signed a death warrant for some kid. I muttered, poor kid, as various scenes of brutality played out in my head. The kid is going to be fine. We dealt with this stuff in the nebula all the time. You follow leads and get information. That's how it works. Targon kept going, saying that a lot of what was going on in the nebula was covert. Secrets were nothing new. They'd been told it was best not to think too much about what they'd seen and to just follow the lead of their superiors. Plenty of people were brought in for questioning without a finger being laid on them. It was just part of the job. I could smell naivete. This kid brought us a piece of one of our comrades. Someone was going to get some hard questions. I just hoped it wasn't her. Almost 30 minutes went by, then Husto came back. He told us to keep quiet in a near whisper and motioned for us to follow. By now, the camp was dark. Everyone was asleep. There were people patrolling on the line, but that was it. We stalked through the rows of tents, headed for the LT's prefab. He didn't just sleep there, it was also a command post for the entire platoon. It's where he took meetings with the locals, organized labor details, and came up with all the combat exercises we engaged in after we spent the entire day digging trenches and laying water pipes. Orto ordered the corporal to stay outside to make sure no one else came in. We lined up in front of a hollow projector and saw a 3D image of Jesper Chorus, the beloved honcho from Flaudeen, the bane of slavers, and eager imperial ally. Are these the soldiers who were given the tea, Lieutenant? The LT nodded. Mr. Chorus is going to show you a series of projections. We want you to identify the girl who gave you the jar of tea. Pay close attention. The projector shifted from an image of Chorus to a series of young Twilik girls, one after another, all of them blue-skinned. We told them to stop on the fourth image as we reacted at the same time. The face of a little girl smiling for her identification shot. All right, Lieutenant. I'll see you at the assigned coordinates in exactly one hour. The projector shut off. The LT told us to head for the Lardy on the standby pad. We walked at a calm, even pace through the camp. No noise, just the sound of breeze coming through the vines. The LT was right behind us, and no one said a thing. Just the six of us and the LT got on board. We walked on and followed Orto's lead as he sat in the cargo nets and latched in. The engines primed and we took off before the doors even closed. Taking off at night was always an experience. Looking down at the ground felt like staring into the bottom of a muddy lake. When we get off this ladder, you will follow me and keep your mouths shut. Do not speak unless spoken to and keep your answers short. The less you say, the better. Understood? He seemed angry, but there was concern in his voice, too. I shot a glance to Altherium, who wasn't shook at all, just shrugged his shoulders as if resigned to whatever was to come. The flight was pretty short, only flew hypersonic for 15 minutes or so, wove through some mountains. I had no clue where we were. 
The weirdest thing was that when we landed, the doors didn't shoot open. Orto didn't get up either. He just sat there, looking straight ahead. We heard another ship flying close. I peered through the slotted windows. It was the Theta class. What the hell was going on here? Even then, Orto didn't move. Just sat there and waited. In silence. I wasn't about to say anything. Another ship came in low. It was surplus military. Flat paint job. A Nymordian transport shuttle. Had a curled lip. Those things were used pretty extensively by the Separatists during the Clone Wars. The LT watched it come in, then stood up and opened the door. Stay here, he told the pilot. Keep the engine primed, Amy. Acknowledged. He looked back and motioned for us to follow. We did and walked out to a clearing in a wide ravine which was surrounded by rough dirt and stone. It was a lot colder, too. Brisk, dry air. The walls of the ravine were steep and high enough I couldn't see out. Had no clue what was above us. I heard the blast doors open on the Theta class. Saw the Inquisitor stride off with her two purge troopers at her side. Then the doors of the other ship opened, and it was Chorus. He had a small body slung over his shoulder, just walked toward us like it was nothing. Didn't talk either, just laid the body in front of us. It was the girl. Is she alive? Chorus nodded. Just stunned her. I was asked to bring her and the others alive, and I did as asked. You serve the Emperor well, Jesper Chorus. You and your people will be rewarded. Troopers, is this the girl? She cut herself off, just raised her head and looked at us. Yes, this is her. Troopers, return to the shuttle. You heard the Inquisitor. Get moving. We clicked our heels and double-timed back to the lardy. I didn't want to know what was going on out there. But after sitting in the cargo hold for six hours, I was more than a little morbidly curious. I know now that when Chorus got off the hollow with the LT, he had the girl and her family rounded up. Apparently her father was known to be a sympathizer to some of the loyalist factions in the region. Not a big player, he just ran in some of the same circles. They were all in the back of his ship. The girl, her parents and three of her brothers. You might think the Inquisitor just killed everybody or tortured the children until someone talked. I mean, that's what the New Republic would have you believe. But no. The Inquisitor just fucked with the guy's head until he squealed. Well, her purge troopers may have loosened him up a bit first. Let's not forget... This guy was doing business with those people that were killing us almost every day. I'd say it got off easy. They lived. And not everyone can say that. The LT got back to the shuttle and sat down on the nets. He was rigid. Engine spooled, LT. We heading home. Affirmative. We latched in and headed back to camp. The next day, we slept until midday, then went back to work digging secondary water lines, which were actually more work than the primary ones because you were digging in a confined space. 
Work crews were divided by squads, which wasn't really unusual, but it wasn't something they ever seemed to care about. Today was different. When we'd slung mud in the sun for a few hours, we got chow. It wasn't a hot meal, just box stuff from Camp Vibus. Better than field rations, though. I'd just begun spooning down a cup of mush that was mislabeled as Libus Bean Delight when Gentala came in and closed the tent flaps. All of you, put your forks down and stay in your seats. Listen closely. Immediately following the meal, you're to prepare your kit for an offensive loadout. At exactly 2200 hours, Squad 4 will board Lati 5052 on Platform 1. You'll be joined by purge troopers Red and Blue, who will inform you of the rest of our operation. Is that understood? We nodded. Yes, Sergeant. Good. I'll see you there. Back at our tent, I was giving my blaster rifle the once-over. Tolan was next to me, polishing off the barrel of his C7 slug thrower. That thing could rip someone clean in two if it hit them right. It'd even shatter heavy-grade plastoid armor. Gentala said to have this as my primary. Guess whatever we're doing, we'll be in pretty close quarters. I looked over at Staven, and she just went back to checking the charge on her clips. Our offensive loadout meant we were making a drop with the anticipation of immediate contact with hostiles. We weren't bringing anything in the ways of ration or the gear we'd need for an overnight op. Just weapons, armor, and ammo. We made it to the lardy pad with plenty of time. As if this day couldn't get any stranger, we were to go on a mean-looking lardy with a fresh, dark gray paint job and a rancor's claw in a fist painted in bright colors on the side. It looked like a throwback to an active Clone War lander. Husto came a few minutes later with Jintala. They were followed immediately by the purge troopers. These two were packing heat, webbing with plenty of clips and detonators, and they had rifles that looked like an E-11, a heavy variation of the rifle we carried, but they were heavily modified, bulkier, beefier, which, given the way they looked and moved, seemed appropriate. They also had what looked like overpowered Z6 rotary cannons slung over their shoulders. These two came ready to deal some damage. You were told 2200 troopers. You're five minutes early. Disobedience is not to be tolerated. This will be your first and only warning. Teach your soldiers how to read a clock, Sergeant. They hadn't even broken their stride. They just kept moving. The lardy doors opened and they went inside, taking up positions on either side of the door. Gentala motioned us to follow and we all got on and sat down on the cargo nets. I expected for us to take off, but we just sat there, looked around, saw some munitions crates strapped against the hull. Then the engines kicked in, hummed as we prepared to get off the ground. I heard her steps as she came onto the ramp. The Inquisitor. We are ready to leave, pilot. Acknowledged. The second she grabbed the hand support, the shuttle lifted and the doors slid closed. I had no idea where we were going or what was happening, which was pretty normal at this point.
The lardy hit Sonic, and we all jerked back. Well, not all. The Inquisitor didn't budge, just looked us over. Troopers, tonight you will be given a chance few ever receive. An opportunity to exact vengeance on those who have brought you pain and suffering. Several months ago, the Iron Star's 79 platoon came under attack of a loyalist terror cell. Squad 1 was thought lost in action, but today we learned that one of your fellow troopers is still alive. We know where they're being held, and tonight, we will bring Private Num Ukarmi home. Holy shit. This was the type of shit we wanted to hear. We'd been looking for a shot like this, a chance to hit back directly at those who'd been baiting us for months. I was surprised at how eager I was for this. Of course, going into combat with two purge troopers and one of the Emperor's chosen added to my confidence. (laughs) The Inquisitor handed things over to the purge troopers. We were to address them as red and blue. They moved through the hold, shuffling us from one side to the other, putting us in specific spots, conferring with each other as they did. We were being broken into fire teams. One dropped a hollow projector in the center of the cargo hold. The image of a mid-sized river jetty shuttle pad popped up. There was a warehouse with a flat roof, big cargo bay doors, secondary building attached to it, a little bit taller more like an office. Two barges were tied up on either side of the dock. There was a cargo hauler on the landing pad about 200 feet long. Rough images of the workers moving crates, nothing too out of the ordinary. This is a real-time image of a warehouse on the Gesby River. It is located in the westernmost sector of Flaudin, and we believe it to be an operation center for a loyalist cell. Tonight, we will breach the warehouse and find Private Ukarme. Observe the layout. Our transport will drop Fireteam Blue. He motioned to everyone sitting in the netting on the left. Here. A flat section of land near a low concrete wall. It had good lines of sight on the dock, but it was kind of open. You could potentially take a lot of heat. As you should be able to see, there is minimal cover. So Fireteam Blue will take an offensive posture. You will eliminate all resistance and hostiles before reaching this junction with the dock and the storage yard. I was in Blue and analyzed what we were just told to do. The hollow was big and you could get a good look at the layout. I visualized where I'd move. I knew this was possible, but you could get shredded if the opposition got wise or was armed. There was just a lot that could go wrong here. Everyone on the right will be designated as Fireteam Red. You will follow me as we're dropped here. A spot on the opposite side of the dock lit up. This position offers an ample field of fire with a proper elevation to maintain significant fire control. Our belief is that there is the potential of a well-armed and well-trained militia force operating at this facility. Fireteam Red will put down suppressive fire, ensuring Fireteam Blue will be secure enough to breach the main cargo storage unit. I could see it all playing out. If Red held their ground and put out enough fire, they could really throw them off balance for Blue to get in clean. 
Then I noticed how close Blue's rally point was to Red's field of fire. They would be shooting about two meters ahead of where we'd be setting up for the breach. My knee bounced as adrenaline pumped through my body. We will sweep in from this angle. An image of the Lardy appeared over the warehouse. It moved along as he spoke. Our ship will lay down a burst of heavy fire, disabling the hauler and preventing it from escaping. The hauler flashed red on the projection. This thing had some firepower. It was a combat-ready Lardy, exactly what was used during the Clone Wars. Primed, painted, and built to bring thunder. My leg kept bouncing. I couldn't help it. I was about to make a combat drop on a well-armed, hostile position. We will then sweep past the dock and over the warehouse in a tight clockwise turn where we will continue to lay down suppressive fire, allowing us to drop fire team red here, followed by blue here. Remember your training, troopers. These people wish to rip the Empire apart and let chaos take root in the galaxy. Do not expect mercy and do not give it. The hollow projector shut off and blue picked it up returning it to a pouch on his webbing. He pulled a line down from the ceiling and attached it to his back armor plate. Red did the same. A second later, we came out of mock. We all lurched forward and could see that we were moving fast and low. Red and Blue picked up the rotary cannons and shifted their weights side to side. I tried to follow suit, give myself a small stretch, but... I was wedged in pretty tight and didn't have much room to move around. Tolan was next to me, giving me an annoyed glance. Then the forward cannons kicked in, and they made the seats hum. The mass driver missile launchers started going off. Those are the big guns that run along Alardi's roof, and they made the entire ship vibrate. They were letting loose a lot of firepower. It was an impressive feeling, but it made you wonder what to expect when we landed. I looked down at Jintala. She was leaned back with her eyes closed, just tapping her foot. The mass drivers stopped, but the forward cannons kept going. Then the side door slid open. It was dark outside, and if not for the ground lighting, it would have been hard to even know our altitude. We were low, maybe 20 meters up, just starting our swing over the jetty. There was smoke everywhere below, the dull flames of plasma missiles cooking anything nearby. Those things had ripped this place apart. At that speed, I couldn't clearly make anything out, though. Invisibility got worse when the purgers opened fire with their Z6s. These things laid out streams of green light. They were not the same ones we used. They had a rate of fire that would turn the average Z6 barrel into mist. Red and blue kept firing as the ship leaned hard into its turn, going over the dock proper. Then we slowed down and the Inquisitor jumped out. Not a fancy flip or anything, she just walked over to the door and leapt out. The training kicked in, the psychological aspect of the training. I ignored her and focused on my mission. Land, get to cover. Kill anyone who got in the way, then breach. Land, get to cover, 
Kill anyone who got in the way, then breach. The lardy dropped, spun. The rear must have come within inches of the warehouse rooftop. It drifted down and rocked to the side. Red smashed her fist into the roof beside her tether and it retracted. All right, Red, let's move. Go, go, go! She hopped off with that Z6 spitting out plasma, and those on her side of the lardy followed. We just pulled up a few meters when enemy fire entered the bay door. It hit Blue's arm and his Z6. He slammed the cannon down and then pulled out a detonator. He threw one after the other as we hovered over the water toward our landing zone. The first was just going off when he retracted his tether line and ordered us off. I was the fourth out, right behind Tolan. Eltherium was behind me. The initial barrage took down some of the light posts. It was dark, and the air was full of smoke, making it difficult to see. As my eyes adjusted, I saw there were some scattered enemy to our right who were still mobile. We opened fire on them. I shot into the smoke until there was nothing there. There were a lot more people on the barges and really put up some fierce resistance. Fortunately, they were more focused on Red, who were putting down fire like crazy. We started shooting at anything that moved. There was a lot of debris everywhere from our missile strikes, plenty of places someone could hide and take a shot. The dock was six meters to our right and extended another 10 out into the Gatsby River. The structure of it was smoking. Either it was burning or whatever was on its surface was. Flames were really sending up smoke too, just making the visibility worse. The barge on the side closest to us was in good condition, still afloat, no visible damage. But the other one further away had toppled over, and its end closest to the shore was underwater. The deck of the closer one had armed workers, loyalists, rebels, whatever you want to call them, crawling out of the hold. They had blaster rifles. I couldn't see what they were, but when they began firing, I clued in these were more Republic-issued E-22s. And they knew how to use them. Very accurate fire. They were maneuvering on the docks and the barges, even moving into fire positions on the half-sunken barge's deck. Anything to get an edge. They had training. They were professional. I picked off a guy right over the hold's trap door, hit him square, and I'm pretty sure I clipped the head of someone trying to get out. Then I moved forward. There were some well-situated spots for cover between me and the rally point, some crates and heavy barrels that had been blown over from the initial missile barrage. I was with Altherium when I saw a spot to drop and observe. There was movement behind it. We both opened fire on them. Three more hostiles down. Altherium was right behind me. He got clipped in our final steps, from the side, where the barge was. Hit him in the leg as he ran, almost flipped clean over. I reached back and grabbed him, dragging him with me. Blaster fire pinged off the Durasteel barrel. We hid behind it. One of the hostiles was still conscious, and he reached for some kind of slug thrower, so I shot him point blank kicked his body out of the way and propped Eltherium up. He was reaching into his webbing for a tourniquet. There's a lot of them in that barge. I popped up, 
The blaster fire coming off the barge was impressive. They were letting loose some really well-placed shots. Fireteam Blue was separated, scattered all over. We'd slipped into shelter where we could, and Red wasn't able to give us adequate covering fire. If both barges had sunk, things would be different, but this mission was not running as planned. I was looking at the furthest barge and was nearly blinded when the whole facility was flooded with white spotlights. Then a torrent of fire came down from above the river. The Lardy let loose another volley of missiles, and the barge went up with a fireball. I dropped low and sheltered myself from the explosion. I was blinded by the light and seared by the heat. My skin was hot. A few workers were thrown into the air and landed behind us. I picked one off and then saw Gentala roll out of cover and run towards me. Get moving, Kwai. Hit the rallying point. She moved fast and sprayed the barge as she went. I did the same. Eltherium said he was in no condition to breach, but he'd cover the rear. He pulled out a detonator and tossed it onto the dock as I leapt over the barrel. I had about 20 meters to go before reaching our intended position near a high stack of cargo containers. There were more loyalists gathered near the end of the dock. They were pulling together some legitimate cover, some glorious last stand. I was running past and I came to a spot where I had a bead on them right from behind. I had no cover. I was fully exposed to multiple shooters, but they didn't know I was there. I stopped dead and aimed. Fired off a few well-placed bursts. I know I hit a few, but they wheeled and returned fire on my position as I moved on. Just a few steps forward and I was out of their line, taking cover behind a chunk of charred container. The edges were still glowing with plasma ignition. There were three others held down behind it. The enemy fire was disciplined, well-timed. My side felt warm and I saw I'd been grazed. The uniform was tattered and the edge of my chest plate was a bit cooked. There were blisters forming from the heat, but I didn't feel pain. What awaits the 79th inside that warehouse? Will they find that missing trooper from the first squad? Where did the Inquisitor get to? That's next time on Episode 8, A Drop of Hatred and Suffering. Thank you for joining me this week on Fearless Fred Presents Mud 79, a Star Wars fan fiction podcast. If you haven't already, make sure you follow the show so you'll never miss an episode. While you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps grow the show and will make my contemptible harpy of a producer very happy. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and wherever else you get your favorite streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information and a full listing of Mud 79's cast. If you want to reach out to me directly, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at fearless underscore Fred or email me at mud79 at curiouscast.ca. This show is hosted and written by me, Fred Kennedy, and Dila Velasquez, the Harpy, our producer. Sound design is by moi and final production is by Rob Johnson. And I'll see you next week for more Mud 79.